You may be seated. I was offered a unique opportunity this morning when I came in to set a record at Grace Covenant and be the first person to ever preach from a kneeler. And as tempting as it was, selfishly I really wanted to, but I thought it would be distracting for you all, so you're welcome. <laughs> it's good to be with you all this morning. Um, my name is Matthew Capone, and I'm a deacon here at Grace Covenant and also uh, your pastoral intern. <clears throat> and it's just an honor to have everyone in worship uh, this morning. Whether this is your first time here at Grace or you've been coming here uh, for years, this is a place to bring your questions and your joys and your doubts and your faith, and it's a place for you to come and be welcomed. And we're grateful that each one of you is here because we believe that there's no one so good that they don't need God's grace and no one um, so bad that they can't have it. And so, for that reason, I just am glad for every one of you. Uh, over the last several weeks, we've been uh, going through an Advent series with our pastors, Dennis and <clears throat> Camper, looking at the songs that various characters have sung during the story of Christ's birth. And now we find ourselves in the middle, looking back to Christmas and looking forward to the new year, and we're in the Psalms once again, uh, just, for a, just for a brief moment, for a Sunday. And just as a reminder, the Psalms uh, are simply a group of 150 different prayers that God has given to his people as models for how they should speak to him. And the church has used it as a prayer book and a hymn book and a guide for worshiping God for <clears throat> thousands of years now. And so it's become one of the most beloved books for the church because it's intensely personal and intensely intimate. And it's so intensely personal and intensely intimate because it's intensely honest. The Psalms never sugarcoat or domesticate the, <clears throat> the joys, uh, the overwhelming hard realities of life uh, in this world. And the psalmist brings his whole self before God, his doubts, his fears, his loves, his joys, his anger, his disappointments, his frustrations, um, and his are ours as well. This morning we're in Psalm 144, and if you have a pew Bible, it's on page 524. I'd ask that you turn there uh, with me as I read that passage for us this morning. It says this, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. May our sons and their youth be like plants full-grown, our daughters like corner pillars, cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be, may there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God 
is the Lord. Would you pray with me as we come to this portion of God's word this morning? Dear Father in heaven, we uh, come this morning knowing that you've invited us, and so now we invite you. Father, as it rains outside and we uh, hear it fall, we remember that you're a God who comes and you bring dead things to life. Father, we ask that you would do that with your word this morning, that you would uh, open our ears to hear. Father, you'd open our eyes to see. Father, you'd open our hearts to believe everything uh, that's written about you in your word. Father, we ask all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. On January 14th, 2007, almost uh, seven years ago now, in Houston, Texas, a young A relatively unknown man became the first American ever to finish a half marathon in under one hour. And it was notable not only for the record that he set, but also because this was one of the very first half marathons he had had ever run. And if you're tempted to think that I'm uh, talking about Tim Hutchison, uh, the man's name is actually Ryan Hall. He was a college athlete at Stanford um, where he struggled with some injuries and setbacks, but after his college career, things really began to pick up for him. And after he set that record in 2007 and 2008, he went on to set a record at the U.S. Marathon Trial, which happened to be his uh, second marathon ever, uh, upsetting many more prominent runners, people who are much uh, better known than him. And then in 2008, he ran the fastest marathon ever run by an American-born citizen. And so leading up to the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, he was hailed by the press. New stories came out. He had a full-length article in Runner's World. He was going to be the next, uh, the next big thing in sports. But after that, things didn't turn out so well for Ryan. Uh, he only placed 10th in the Olympics. <clears throat> but in 2011, he had probably his greatest success. He became the fastest American to ever run the Boston Marathon. And after 2011, though, things very abruptly changed for him. At the height of success, at a place of blessing, at a place of prominence within his own um, calling, his own career, he had to pull out of the London Marathon in 2012 after just 11 miles due to a hamstring injury. In 2012, again, he pulled completely out of the New York City Marathon, and in 2013, this year, he pulled out again out of the Boston Marathon. His past was filled with tremendous success. He was a meteoric rise to the top uh, with tremendous press attention. Now he has tremendous press attention for every race he pulls out of, every injury he has, um, everything he can't do. And the story of Ryan Hall is the story of of many, many athletes, but it's also the story that we find David in this morning, that he faces opposition and difficulty in the very same place where he had previously experienced tremendous blessing and victory. And as we look at the psalmist situation this morning, there's two things we need to understand. One, he's a king. This is someone who's ruling over his people, singing a song for them and before them. He has a place of leadership and influence. People are looking to him uh, for guidance. But it's not just a psalm about a king. The psalmist here is facing, much like Ryan Hall, opposition and difficulty in the very same place where God had tremendously blessed him. If you look with me at the passage, you can see he even speaks about his previous blessing. It says in verse 2, God has subdued peoples under him. He's trained his hands for war, and so he's uh, experienced tremendous success. We see it in the the psalm here, but what's not as clear is that the psalmist actually here is quoting directly over and over again from 
Psalm 18. And to understand the significance of that, you have to know that Psalm 18 was a victory psalm. In fact, it's so important it shows up not once, but twice in the scriptures. One time in the Psalms itself, but it also shows up in 2 Samuel. And Psalm 18 is a psalm of beginnings for David. In both uh, sections, it introduces it as a song he sung to the Lord when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And if you know anything about David's history, he was an unlikely pick. He's chosen as the youngest of all his brothers to be king. In 1 Samuel 16, he's anointed years before he would ever be able to take that place. And then he goes through tremendous hardship and difficulty as he comes up against uh, Saul, his predecessor. And it's not until many years later, until all the way in 2 Samuel, that Saul finally dies and David's anointed king. And so here in this psalm, in Psalm 144, where David finds himself uh, under attack, uh, if you look on verses 7 through 8 and verse 11, he is speaking about the foreigners who are coming against him. And in the midst of that difficulty, in the midst of him being threatened at his very kingdom, he looks back to God's faithfulness in the past and looks back to his own inauguration as king. And he contrasts it sharply with the present. No longer are people singing songs for and about David. Uh, His approval ratings are probably dropping. And in many ways, his current crisis perhaps overshadows uh, his past success. The things that were exciting for him are now things that are very difficult, very hard, places where he's under attack. And this psalm speaks directly to us this morning as God's people because we find ourselves often in the very same situation in both ways. First of all, we ourselves, much like David, are kings in certain ways. Many of you teach at, attend, or graduated from William and Mary, one of the foremost institutions not only in this country but in the world. Many of you have degrees and experience and competencies. You hold places of leadership in our community, places that God's put you in and called you to. And much like David, many of you have now been following God for quite uh, some time. This psalm shows up late in the Psalter, all the way at 144. In fact, there's only one more psalm that's going to happen, Psalm 145, before we have a conclusion to the Psalter. Psalms 146 through 150 are basically just going to be praising God for the faithfulness looking back on Psalms uh, 1 through Psalm 145. Uh, But you, like David, have children, you have students, you have employees, you have coworkers, you have colleagues looking to you for strength, for provision, for protection, for leadership. And the only difference between you and many other kings of this world is, in many ways, a difference of degree. But we also find ourselves in the second situation. Most of you are probably not in a literal war uh, right now, but much like David, you do find yourselves in places where an area that was a place of success and blessing for you in the past now feels very threatened. Uh, That same place of success and blessing seems insecure uh, and unstable. Some of you prayed for a job and celebrated it uh, when God gave it to you. You remember graduating with the degrees that you needed to start the careers that you have. And you look back on that as a time of celebration, now wondering how much longer you're going to be able to stay. Um, Things have become more and more difficult for you. People have told uh, lies about you or to you. You're not sure if you can handle the temptations that now surround you. Some of you even find yourselves without a job, looking back on what used to be something that was secure, something that was stable, something that was reliable. Now you don't know what will be secure or stable or reliable. Perhaps your ability to perform your job uh, is threatened. Many of you know that my boss for several weeks this year 
struggled even to be able to speak. And if you know anything about running a school, you're paid to speak. And so <clears throat> her very ability to perform the job that she's received so much acclamation for was, was at stake. Uh, in your parenting, the children that you celebrated, that you prayed for, you now wonder in moments of honesty what you were thinking. Before you had kids, everything you touched turned to gold. Uh, now you're lucky to make it through another day. You find yourself texting your spouse and you say, I don't know if I can do uh, this anymore. You come up against the hard reality of rebellion and difficulty and things that you never expected. And what you thought was something that you would always celebrate is now a place of <clears throat> tremendous difficulty, tremendous tension. Some of you in business, you've had uh, places of success. You began, you started out, someone's stolen money from you. Uh, some of you have had your identity stolen, people pretending to be who they weren't. The company that you started is stalled, and <clears throat> as the economy was booming, things were going well for you, but now, not so much. The people that look to you aren't sure whether you're going to be able to perform and produce in the ways that, that you have in the past. Some of you praised God and celebrated the marriages that he gave you. You now uh, beg him for deliverance from its pain. The relationship that you celebrated and found strength from now appears to just be one fight after another. You used to share openly about your hopes and your dreams and your fears, and now you're afraid to share anything for uh, the threat of, threat of another, another fight. Um, and this isn't just personal for us, but it's also national as well. As we watch the news, it's tempting for some of us to believe that the places in our nation's culture and government that we used to celebrate and champion and take security from are now threatened and at risk of destruction. And we fear an irreversible national decline. And if you feel like this doesn't apply to you this morning, I'd say simply this. If you're living in Psalm 18 right now, if you're in a place of success, of flourishing, and of blessing you will eventually live in Psalm 144. The Psalms um, do many things, but one thing the Psalms do is, is they prepare us for life. They teach us wisdom by showing us what we have to expect along the way. And so the Psalm has to speak to all of us this morning, showing us what to do in the midst of that, showing us what to expect as we walk along life in this world. But in this Psalm, we don't just learn the Psalmist's situation. We don't just learn that he's in a bad spot that he used to be successful, he used to be prestigious, he used to be looked up to. But he also learned the source of his difficulty. First of all, I want to tell you what the source of his difficulty isn't. Look with me at verse 1. He says, Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. As I stand before you this morning, I'm not exactly sure what that means. But I do know this, that if the Lord has prepared his hands for battle, then the problem that the psalmist is facing is not his lack of preparation. It's not his lack of skill. It's not his lack of competency. He doesn't ask the Lord for wisdom here in this psalm. He does at other times. It's right to ask God for wisdom. He promises to answer in James. But that's not what the psalmist asks him for here. He's experienced at fighting battles. He's done it before. He's conquered Saul. He's been king for a long time. And it's not a result of sin. The psalmist doesn't repent here. He doesn't talk about the ways that he has failed, the way that he's fled from God. And so the problems that he's up against aren't things that can be simply fixed by strategies or contingencies. But the psalmist actually tells us clearly, explicitly, not just once, but twice, the problem he's up against. The problem isn't a lack of training. It's not his own sin. The problem that the psalmist is up against is deceit 
He's up against dark and heavy spiritual forces. Look with me at verses 7 and 8 and then verse 11 again. He says, Stretch out your hand from on high, rescue me, and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. He goes on again in verse 11 to repeat it. Rescue and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. And to understand what he's talking about, what it means to have a right hand of falsehood, it doesn't mean you're talking with your hand when you speak, but he's speaking about what happens when people go before a law court, that they put up their right hand and swear that what they're going to say is true. And so that these men that the psalmist is up against are so deceitful, their consciences are so seared that even when they show up in the most serious, the most weighty situations, they won't tell the truth. What the psalm is telling us this morning is that many of these situations that we find ourselves in are very real, very powerful, very threatening, and they're because of very real, very powerful, very threatening spiritual forces. That there are real ways that those are at work, and in fact, ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, deceit and evil forces have been linked together, ever since the serpent lied to Eve. Now, you might be wondering what the reference to foreigners here is about, and it's not that the psalmist is afraid of people from other countries, but these are foreign forces in the sense that they're coming up against him and attacking him. And despite being written uh, thousands of years ago, we also find ourselves in places where men of deceit come up against us. You don't need to look far. If you look to our financial markets, you can see places where borrowers lie to lenders, lenders lie to investors, banks lie to regulators about the risks they were taking, and to make a long, complicated story short, for those reasons, because of those men of deceit who had right hands of deceit, it's been a lot harder to get a job, to get a promotion. It's part of the reason that your nonprofit school, church, ministry, organization has had so many struggles the last few years. In fact, an article just came out this month in Forbes magazine saying that the financial firms responsible for much of this, uh, since 2010, Wall Street's six biggest banks by assets have shelled out $85.8 billion in settlements tied to the credit and mortgage crisis. And you can read crisis there charitably. You could read it as credit and mortgage lies. In your parenting, the rebellion that you face in your parenting, it's not necessarily because of your lack of skill. It's not necessarily because of your lack of ability or competence, but because your children have believed lies about you, about themselves, because you believe lies about them and about yourself. And deceit isn't something that can be solved by parenting techniques. Some of your children have told lies to you and to others, sometimes even making promises to others and making promises with their bodies that they have no intention of keeping. In your marriage as well, you've listened to and believed lies about each other, about your marriage, about yourself. And some of the problems that we come up against in our society and our nation are because our culture and our leaders have told lies, they've believed lies about what will cause us and our nation to flourish. So why are we looking at this passage this morning? For many reasons, but one is this. The psalmist finds himself, as we look towards the new year, in a situation that resolve and resolution won't solve. The point is this, that life in this world is filled with messy and messed up situations that are not always your fault. And as you come up against that reality in those situations, the question before us this morning is, what are you going to do with it? 
There's many temptations. There's many things the psalmist could do. And the reality is that these crises and these anxieties reveal the hopes and identity that we have. What feels most threatening, most overwhelming, is what strikes at the very core of our identity. If it ultimately rests on this area of success, the area of success that's difficult, the area of success that's threatened, then the possibility of failure for us is unthinkable. And so our identity creates our anxiety. And so there's many ways that we deal with this. We cope to come up against this threat. One is distraction. Focus on an area where you are successful. Something's not going well in your family. Find some other place where you can be successful. Things aren't going well at work. Put attention somewhere else. Pick out hobbies. Give up the responsibilities that God has given you for things that he hasn't. Some of us deal with this through numbing it by addiction. We've discovered that prescription painkillers can deal with more than one kind of pain. We're caught up in fantasies in a world where there's no difficulty, no friction, where the reason and purpose of other people is to serve and worship us. Some of us have dealt with it by shutting down our hearts. We stop wishing, hoping, dreaming that things could be better because the pain and the disappointment of not getting what we want is so great that we would rather not face it. Some of us deal with this through denial. We simply deny what's going on. We ignore it. We pretend it's not a reality. Some of us deal with it through comparison and complaint. We look at all the people who are flourishing, who are doing well, and we shake our fist at God. Some of us deal with despair and we're angry at God. We believe that we did everything that was right, everything we were supposed to, and we thought that that would earn us blessing, and it hasn't. And we come up and realize that the reason we did those things wasn't because of our relationship with God, but because we wanted to manipulate him to bless us. And so we grow more and more distant. And all of these really are ways that we can either run towards the problem or away from it. And the psalmist this morning comes in the midst of that, and God himself comes in the midst of that through this psalm and models something completely different. He gives us a counter-response. The psalmist shows for us what we can do in turning away from all those things. Those options that have been presented, they're either ways of running away from the problem or ways of running towards the problem. The psalmist does something very different. The psalmist runs to God. And he does that in several very clear, very specific ways. First of all, he looks back and takes confidence from God's faithfulness in the past. This quotation of Psalm 18, they riddle throughout the whole psalm. And it's not just the psalmist's acknowledgement of the fact that he used to be successful. He's remembering Psalm 18 because he's remembering God's faithfulness in his own life. And his former places of success are their own encouragement, own places of, of comfort as he remembers God's faithfulness. But he doesn't just remember God's faithfulness in his own life. He doesn't just remember that God subdued peoples under him. He also remembers God's faithfulness in the life of Israel as a whole. If you look with me at verse 5, he references touching the mountains so that they smoke. And here it's a reference to Mount Sinai where God's presence showed up for the Israelites at the very beginning of their history as a nation. It's not coincidental, it's not accidental that he references this because God handing down the law on Mount Sinai was one of the core acts of the people of Israel becoming a nation. It was God's law for them that helped make them a people. And so as his own people are under threat, the psalmist looks back to the time when God began. And he takes that as his own encouragement. And so the psalmist is telling us here as well, that his story and the story of God's people throughout history are one and the same. That he is part of what 
God is doing throughout all of history, and that God's deliverance of his people in the past serves as a present encouragement. If you believe I'm making this up, Paul himself says this in Romans 15.4. He says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So my application for you this morning is this. As you come up against situations that resolve and resolution won't solve, instead of creating resolutions, list God's act of faithfulness that brought you to this place. And not simply faithfulness in general, but specific faithfulness in the very same place where you feel threatened. Because that's what the psalmist does here. David doesn't list out all the ways that God's been faithful to him in his family, in his marriage. David lists out the ways that God's been faithful to the nation that he now leads. And the ways that God's been faithful to him as a general, which is the very same place where he now feels threatened. And in doing that, as David looks back, he realizes that the place of success then, even though it's the very same place of failure and attack now, it's also the very same God. And the stability that David gains from that allows him to move on. He doesn't just look back, but looking back gives him the courage to look forward. He remembers God's faithfulness in the past, and it propels him to seek God's faithfulness even now. So after he remembers the king, David himself requests deliverance. If you look again at 7 and 8 and verse 11, we've talked already about the, the men who speak lies. But all of this is in the context of David seeking deliverance from God. And at this point, I want to mention that all of this for David is happening in the context of worship. And if you look at verses 9 and 10, he actually promises future worship based on God's deliverance in this situation. He says, I'll sing to you a new song, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp, I will play uh, for you. Often in the Christian community and in church, you'll hear people encouraging you to just worship. Just leave everything behind that's come before and forget about it. And what the psalmist does here exactly is the opposite. The psalmist never just worships. But whenever the psalmist worships, he comes bringing his fears, his doubts, his successes, his failures. And so for us this morning, as we look at a new year, our application is the same. When you come before the Lord in worship, don't forget those things. Don't just worship. Bring your success, your fear, and your failure. And as the psalmist requests God's deliverance here... For some of us living in a Western world, we can question this and think, well, why is the psalmist so interested in warfare? I thought God was a God of peace, and it's important to note at this point that the deliverance the psalmist requests is defensive, not offensive. He is under attack, and he's asking God simply to deliver him. And not only is he asking God to deliver him, but his deliverance is simply a means to an end. The psalmist is looking towards a vision that he has for his people and for himself. He doesn't desire war, in fact, quite the opposite. If you look at verses 12 through 14, he's not interested in blood sport. He's actually dreaming of a time when there won't be uh, any more. And that's the third thing that he does in this psalm for us this morning, is that he casts a vision. In the midst of difficulty, the psalmist isn't so distracted, so pulled away, so anxious, <clears throat> that he simply focuses on the problem at hand. But instead, he's bold enough, he's brave enough to risk disappointment, He comes before God, lays his heart out in practical, real ways, and says, this is how I want to flourish. This is how I want my people to flourish. This is how I want my nation to flourish. And this is the hinge to understanding the prayer for God to thunder in verse 5. He's asking God to come and accomplish a vision of peace for his people. For us this morning, many of us have given up on praying and dreaming 
for our families, for our careers, for our marriages, for our children. And the psalmist here is modeling for us something different. It's often tempting for me to believe in my own life as much as I might claim the opposite, that God's given up on me, that he's left me to my own devices. And here the psalmist comes boldly and confidently and says just the opposite. He prays, risking disappointment before God, and names what's true now and what's not true. He understands the difference between them and comes asking God to bring it. And as again, as we look towards the new year, he doesn't come with New Year's resolutions, but the psalmist comes with a new vision, and he brings it before the Lord. The question before us this morning is, as we look at verses 12, 13, and 14, are your sons in their youth like plants full grown? Are your daughters like corner pillars? Are your granaries full, producing all kinds of produce? Are your cattle heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure? In other words, are you flourishing in those places of your life? If you are, then you can follow David in bringing it to the Lord as a song of praise. Look through again at verses 1 and 2 and 9 and 10. God praises, David praises God for his deliverance and his provision. If you're not, then what David models is coming before God, naming the places of conflict, boldly asking him to come and intervene, and remembering his faithfulness in the past. But the psalmist hasn't just performed a mind trick here. He hasn't come, and um, hasn't come under the influence of positive thinking. But we didn't look too carefully at uh, verses 3 and 4. And what's happened here for the psalmist is he comes before the Lord because he's had a moment of understanding at some level uh, the gospel. He looks at all the things that God's done for him in verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 3, the psalmist is amazed. And why is he amazed? He wants to know why God has blessed him so much. And the reason he's amazed is because he understands he doesn't deserve it. The psalmist knows he hasn't done anything to earn God's blessing. He hasn't done anything worth God's blessing. And so that, ironically, gives him the confidence to come and ask for God's blessing because he knows it doesn't depend on his own work. There are two things that are repeated twice in this psalm. One is that the Lord's blessed, and the other is that there are men of deceit. And the question is, why is it blessed to be the people whose God is the Lord? It's blessed to be a people whose God is the Lord because, verse 3, he's regarded people who are but a breath. The logic here is that God has prepared David, he's protected David, he's fought for David, and David hasn't done anything to earn it. And not being able to earn God's favor freely gives David the chance to ask for it. And his heart is revealed as he realizes this in the midst of the battle. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with the claims of Christianity, you don't know what you believe, you don't know if this is a God worth worshiping, I have a couple things to say to you this morning. First, wouldn't it be great to finally be able to just be a breath? In verses 5 and 6, David is implicitly comparing his God to the gods of the other nations around him. And what the kings of the other nations do is they try to make themselves gods. They pretend that they have the power and ability and authority that they don't. And the reality is is that's overwhelming. The weight of that is something that David himself doesn't have to carry. And I simply say to you this morning, it's a weight that you don't have to carry either. What does this say to you? It says, blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. He comes close to us even though we're but a breath. And it's also telling us that we're simply a breath. And in this 
psalm, we have the opportunity to let our own smallness in the right way drive us to Christ. And so verse 3 speaks directly to you. The psalmist ends this in a very interesting way in verse 15. He has a two-part parallelism here. He says, blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. And to understand this, I wanted to tell you a story I read recently. I've been going through a book by Sonia Nazario called Enrique's Journey. And in this book, she chronicles the phenomenon in which in Central America, often a husband will leave his family for another woman and go start another family. And the wife will be left with her children, unable to care for them, unable to provide for them. And so often they will risk near-death experiences for months, traveling through Central America and then all the way through Mexico to make it to the United States. And when they make it to the United States, these mothers will go and find jobs as housekeepers and nannies, and they'll send money back to their children in Central America so that they can eat and thrive. And in this book, she tells the story of one mom and son pair. The mom's name is Carmen, and the son's name is Minor. And Carmen leaves uh, her son because things have become too difficult for them at their, at their house. There's not a whole lot of food for them to eat, and so at times she will encourage Minor to lie down and sleep on his stomach to quiet the rumblings that he has. When she's able to, she'll mix sugar with water and give that to them to, to deal with a little bit of, of their hunger. But it becomes so much she has to flee. And so Minor begins to live this life in Guatemala where he receives presents from his mother frequently. She sends him gifts and pays for his schooling. And in the middle of coming to that, Nazario gives us this haunting quote. She says this, Minor's friends in Guatemala envied the money and presents Carmen sent. You have it all. Good clothes, good tennis shoes, they said. Minor answered, I'd trade it all for my mother. I never had someone to spoil me, to say, do this, don't do that. Have you eaten? You can never get the love of a mother from someone else. And what Minor is recognizing in that is something profound. That there are material blessings and there are spiritual blessings. There are relational blessings. And the material blessings without the spiritual blessings are neither blessed nor a blessing. That Minor would be willing to give it up all just to have his mom back with him. And that's exactly what the psalmist is telling us in verse 15. In Old Testament poetry, a frequent uh, strategy of the psalmist is to use parallelism is where you state uh, the same idea twice in different ways. And when we first read verse 15, it's tempting to believe that these are both the same ideas, that blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall, referring to all the material blessings the psalmist has named, and then blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. But the psalmist has already made it clear in this psalm that those two things aren't the same. His people are the Lord's people, and he doesn't have those blessings. And so what point is the psalmist making? He's setting us up for a whiplash here, for a, for a sucker punch in a sense, because we've made it to the end of this psalm and we're just expecting a really nice, easy parallelism, and he throws us something that's a curveball. He's telling us several things. One, it's true that it's blessed to have such blessings, and it's blessed to be a people whose God is the Lord, but they're not the same thing. And clearly the psalmist has one and not the other. If these blessings had fallen to him, he wouldn't be praying for them in this psalm. But clearly the God is the Lord, and yet they don't have their blessings. And so there's two points here. Even without the material blessings that the psalmist prays for, he knows that it's blessed to be the Lord. 
But sometimes in spite of those circumstances, we don't. The second point the psalmist is making is, is this. If such blessings fell to us, much like with Minor, they wouldn't be blessed or a blessing if the Lord wasn't our God. And so as we read verse 15, the point is this. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Yes, sort of. But you know who's really blessed? Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. And just like Minor, the psalmist's focus here is relationship rather than resolution or riches. As he ends this psalm, he doesn't know how it's going to turn out. We don't see the end of the story, but we do see that the psalmist ends with confidence in God rather than confidence in the right outcome. God is the rock for him, from verse 1, even if these material blessings don't fall. And so the parallelism at the end tells us, in fact, this, something very encouraging. There's something greater, something better, something more exciting than everything that the psalmist has just listed in verses 12 through 14. There's something more exciting than sons in their youth being like plants full grown. There's something more exciting than granaries being full and sheep bringing forth thousands. And you know what that is? The psalmist has figured it out. What's more exciting than that is to be a people whose God is the Lord. And so every Sunday as Dick came up, we come, we pray for needs in our congregation, things we don't have answers for, things we don't have the answers Two, things we don't know why. And sometimes we experience the answers that we want. We receive the blessing, and sometimes we don't. But Psalmist is reminding us this, that we're speaking to God when we come to him in worship. And that itself is a blessing more than any wealth, sort of wealth could be. And the psalmist finishes his psalm here because that's what he needs to know. He can have contentment in the midst of his struggle, in the midst of his threat, in the midst of every place of success that he's had being in question. He doesn't need the answers to his questions because he knows his God is the Lord. Now, as people reading this in the New Testament time, after the coming of Christ, when we look at any psalm that's been written by David, we can now look at it as being fulfilled in Christ, that Christ has come as a fuller David, as his descendant. And this psalm, whenever we see in the psalmist David doing something that cares for his people, Whenever we see him praying for his people, we can see Christ doing the very same thing for us. And so what this psalm is telling us is that Christ comes and prays for his people. He prays this prayer that we would be blessed, and he died to make it happen. That this here, Psalm 144, is a song sung by, yes, King David, but then also a song sung by a greater king, a psalm sung by Christ. And the psalmist can risk disappointment because he knows he won't be disappointed. He knows that his offspring will be Christ himself. In fact, this psalm follows a similar pattern. When Christ came to the earth, he's anointed, much like David was anointed at a time of celebration and inauguration. And at the beginning of his ministry, people flocked to him. They longed to be with him. But here, much like David, he came to a place where men of deceit were coming up against him. And when Christ hung on the cross, God the Father did not bow the heavens and come down. If you look at verse 5, instead he turned away his face. And in verses 7 and 8 and 11, we see that David is up against men of deceit. And we find in the New Testament that Christ was helpless against men of deceit so he could help deliver us from men of deceit. In fact, we're told this explicitly in 1 Peter 2, 22. It says this, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
And it's not over. If we keep going in the psalm and read verse 12 again, we realize that God allowed his son to be cut down in his youth and not to be a plant full grown so that we could flourish as plants full grown. So as we come to the end of the psalm, verses 12 through 14 are hope for us for this reason. We're able to cast a vision of shalom, of wholehearted flourishing, because Christ ultimately comes to bring it. We may not have it fully now, but there's a shalom we have now and a shalom we will have. And this vision is a vision that God has for his people. He comes and dies for us. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul takes the poetic image of God the Father as a rock in the Old Testament, and he does a remix. Paul tells us actually the rock was Christ. And as we look back in verses, well, just verse 1, he says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war. The psalmist was looking to God, not knowing completely what we know now, that Christ is the rock because he made his hope and dream for us a reality. That when he died on the cross, he did everything necessary to bring us peace with God so that we can live content when our dreams are not our realities. And so the psalm uh, before us this morning presents that, that we can live in the tension. As we look back on Christmas, a time for many of us a blessing, we look forward to the new year. My encouragement to you this week is to sit down and follow the psalmist. One, list out the ways that God's been faithful to you, especially in the places where it feels very threatening. Two, don't make New Year's resolutions, but cast a vision for the new year. Follow the psalmist here. Psalmist doesn't over-spiritualize doesn't ask that the gospel would come and penetrate their hearts, although I'm sure he would and wants that. But here he's asking for very practical, very real, very tangible things. He's asking for blessing for his children, asking blessing for himself. This idea of the difference between the spiritual and material blessing shows up later in the prophets. In Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 9, he tells us this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Would you pray with me? Dear Father in heaven, we come to you this morning tired of being our own righteousness, our own justice, our own peace, our own protection. And we come wondering what it might be like to have you as king. Father, we ask that you would lead us in that even this morning. Father, we wonder if there's a reality that you could actually change and come and do something in our lives. Father, we ask that you would come and do that now, that you'd remind us that to be your people is blessed and it's a blessing. Even in the midst of places where we feel very threatened. Father, we feel unsure, we feel anxious. Father, we ask that you would come and do that right now. You would come and encourage us. You would come and strengthen us. We ask all these things in the name of your Son. Amen.